failure, especially in new territory. As a human being trying to live a, you know, a full life, failure's going to come along with the territory. Embrace it, accept it. Know that instead of it being shameful and embarrassing, it's actually a source of connection and relationship with other people. You will make mistakes, you will have failures, and you'll get through them. Welcome to Secret Leaders. Today, I'm joined by Amy Edmondson. Amy is the Novartis Professor of Leadership and Management at Harvard Business School, a renowned author, and in 2022 was recognized by Thinkers50 as the most influential management thinker in the world. She's known for her work in the research of psychological safety, the notion that the most successful teams are those in which people can speak up and admit their mistakes. She's with us today to talk about her new book, Right Kind of Wrong, Why Learning to Fail Can Teach Us to Thrive, and I can't wait to hear more about it. Amy, welcome to Secret Leaders. Thank you so much for having me. So I'm sure I missed a few things out in your introduction, but let's get straight into it. Why do we hate to fail? <laughs> well, I think we come by it honestly. We have a natural aversion to failure. We would rather succeed than fail. There's an, an instinctive worry about fear. I mean, about failure, excuse me. Um, and, and, and so that's quite natural. Our social environment and our upbringing is that exacerbate that natural aversion to failure. So I think it's pretty straightforward, right? We, we want to succeed. We want to be thought well of. We want to do well. We don't want to fail. And talk to me a little bit more about the aversion then. So instinctive emotional response to failure. Like, you know, when you say instinctive, is that, you know, from... Like people often talk about, you know, uh, ancient days, the caveman days. Is this like a fight or flight kind of situation? I, I think it absolutely is. In fact, it's quite closely related to the fight or flight, that that amygdala triggered response that, that leads us to, to, to panic a little bit. And if you think about it, long ago, days of hunter-gatherers, we would have been at risk for death if we somehow got expelled from the tribe, right? If, if people decided we were not worth having around, we were in trouble. Our success, our life depended upon others' willingness to sort of connect and associate with us. And, and so I think that's where it, it traces back to, but certainly from a very early age, most of us are given strong messages about getting things right, getting the right answer in school and not failing. And, and our, our failures are greeted with derision or humiliation and our, our successes are greeted with applause. So we'd rather have the applause. Just as you were saying it, I was remember remembering watching, you know, a recent Planet Earth, David Attenborough, you see this tri you know, group of monkeys basically. And if they don't stay together, if the fittest doesn't survive, doesn't manage to keep up and succeed, like you say, it literally can be a matter of life or death and all descended from monkeys. It was really interesting to see that being a, a real thing. It's so visceral. Mm. And today, that doesn't describe the modern world to the same extent at all. And yet we have those vestiges, I think, in our emotional systems. So when you talk about, you know, we're taught it from a young age, how do you think that's changing? So like, what have you seen in your career about that, that narrative and that attitude? How have you seen that changing through your lifetime? And I've got a part two. Well, I think that uh, we're very influenced today, and it is changing education by Carol Dweck's work on mindset. And I think we have a greater appreciation, certainly than when I was in elementary school, that children need to try new things and be be allowed and encouraged to fail and, and sort of get, get comfortable with that discomfort of failure, because that's where... That's where learning and stretch and accomplishment really come from, is that that willingness to try something that might not work out and experience the disappointment of it, but the, but it's not crippling, it's not fatal. And so I, I think we're much more aware culturally, at least intellectually, we're aware that failure is a stepping stone to success, that without a willingness to take risks, there's it's very difficult to accomplish great things. But intellectually understanding that and kind of emotionally taking it to heart are two different things. Yeah. So uh, obviously Winston Churchill uh, was uh, reminding me when you said that, you know, success is not final, failure isn't fatal, uh, is a, a perfect example of this. I was reflecting how I've spent quite a lot of time in America, live in the UK, been very fortunate to travel to lots of different parts of the world. And I spent a month in Japan. And the reason I'm bringing up these three places is 
I think culturally America is probably the furthest ahead in the curve with the attitude of, you know, failure isn't fatal. The UK may be somewhere in the middle. And then you think about somewhere like Japan, great shame, cultural shame around the idea of failure. And it's very baked into, you know, the culture about pride and success and everything else. So I'm curious as to your own experience. These are sort of a cosmetic perspectives. I'm not an academic on the topic, but this is, as a, if you will, a visitor that spent time in different countries, what I observe. I wonder what you think academically and what you've seen as the, the progress we're making in the narrative around failure in different parts of the world. Well, I think the narrative is one thing, and, and I do think we're making progress in the narrative. And I think you're right that the U.S. narrative around failure is quite advanced, shall we say. And there's a, you know, virtually a mantra among entrepreneurs about, you know, fail fast and, and, and we learn from our failures and probably no, no great entrepreneur just kind of immediately shows up as a great entrepreneur with a great company. They have to have had their prior failures for us to really be willing to bet on them and think that they're going to succeed. So there's, there's all of that rhetoric. There's that, there's that narrative. I still think even in the U.S., that we have a very hard time emotionally and psychologically kind of coping with our own failures. We can we can love to step back and, and, and celebrate the idea of failure and celebrate the failures of others, perhaps. But at some deep level, we think, no, I'm going to be the exception. I'm going to skip the failure part and just go right to a, you know, wildly successful new company or discovery or idea, et cetera. And, and how do you think this is this sort of plays out in industries? Because... I suppose I'm thinking right now in science. Science is a process of failing and proving and failing and proving. It feels a bit natural there. It's not sort of a shame attached to it. Whereas in other industries, and maybe that's why technology is quite good with it as well, because technology is quite often rooted in the scientific aspect. Do you see a broad range of how people behave around this? Yes, absolutely. You know, the, the, the idea of intelligent failures and fail fast and all of that live in science and technology. I mean, that, that's their bread and butter. They get that. They get that at a very deep level. Now, I'm married to a scientist. I live with a scientist. And I know for sure that he still prefers success, right? That if he and young scientists in his lab have a hypothesis and they run an experiment, and many of these experiments take weeks for the cells to develop in the cultures and so on. When it turns out they're wrong, it is deeply disappointing. They far prefer to be right, make no mistake. Um, and, and, and yet, so how do they live with it, right? How do they go to work each day knowing that 80% of the time they're gonna fail? I think the answer lies in two things. One, they understand this is the, the sport they signed up for, right? It's a sport where you're going to fail more than you're you're going to succeed. They also absolutely delight in that 20% or whatever the percent is. You know, the, the, the discoveries that the, the experiments that do work are so exciting and they lead to, you know, big papers and big contributions and successful careers. So they learn to live with that challenge. So their failure muscles are more developed um, than, than the rest of us. But I, but I think they, they learn that. They don't naturally have it. They're not sort of different kinds of people than, than you or I. Yeah, I mean, interestingly, fa failure is one of my favorite topics. We even have a sub-series on Secret Leaders all about failures. They're just 15-minute mm -hmm. episodes on failures because we believe you learn more about those than you do just from success stories. And there's a great book I read years ago called Black Box Thinking. I don't know if you've read it. Oh, yes. Matthew Syed. Uh, Matthew Syed, yeah. yeah. Love um, it. And, and, and that was sort of the first time I was like, you know, this is so... These two examples I will just always stick in my head. Obviously, black box thinking coming from the aircraft industry, airplane industry, um, which has something like the lowest rate of fatal failures, like in any industry, full stop, because it's so innately focused around discussing and bringing up failures. And you compared it to the medical industry, where you get sued for making mistakes, so people hide it. And, you know, you track that over time and you have like the safest industry in the world versus this calamity that should be exponentially safer. But there's a lot of shame attached to it. So, yeah, I'd love I'd love your opinions yes. on this because I rarely get to speak to an academic on the topic. Right. This is such an important and interesting phenomenon. And you're right. There are industry level differences. And of course, anybody in aviation or healthcare, for that matter, would bristle at the idea that failure is good. Right? They'd say, hold on you don't live in my world, right? In my world, failure is bad. But as you say, in aviation, 
The only way they've gotten to their extraordinary safety record is through awareness of failure. You know, not through ignoring it or wishing it away or commanding it away, but by literally knowing it's around every corner. You know, they're obsessed with it. So because of that heightened awareness, then there's more thoughtful interrelationships in the in the cockpit. And there, there's, you know, more analysis of the small things that do go wrong and more willingness to look at the close calls uh, to figure out what you can learn from them and, 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 and make yourself even safer tomorrow. And I, I don't think it's, you know, I think what you say about healthcare is absolutely true. They have a a less good safety record than aviation. But to their credit, they do have a harder problem. The nature of patient care, it's, it's enormous, you know, there's a lot of knowledge about how to do it well, but it's also enormously variable. And every patient is in an important way unique. And so the care is, is customized and complex and 24 seven, you know, the handoffs are complex. So it's, it's actually a really hard job. Now their attitudes need to keep up with that reality, right? If if they're if they if people in, in 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 the care professions think, okay, when something goes wrong, there's a culprit, let's find them, let's sue them, let's jail them, that's not going to help us become safer, right? But when they say, wow, we work in a complex, customized, error-prone system, then they're more able to adopt the behaviors that we've seen in aviation. They're more able to say hold on, that doesn't seem to be the right thing to be doing right now, to, to, to speak up, to catch and correct. And so what I have seen in my research is tremendous variance across teams, across healthcare systems, in the culture of learning and in the safety culture. All begs the question, why become an expert on failure? <laughs> yeah, right. I'm a glutton for punishment. Uh, it's a topic I have been long interested in, I think, in part because like every social psychologist, you sort of are drawn to things that worry you, drawn to things that are hard and painful for you. So I'm, um, I think I have I've always been quite ashamed of my shortcomings. And, and I remain so today. You know, that's painful and hard to live with. Or let's get scientific about it and realize we can have fun with it, right? That, that in fact, failure, especially in new territory, you know, as a researcher or just as a, as a human being trying to live a, you know, a full life, failure is going to come along with the territory. Embrace it, accept it. Know that instead of it being shameful and embarrassing, it's actually a source of connection and relationship with other people. I mean, I, I like you better when I discover that you're fallible, when I discover, when I get to know some of the things you're worried about or that you've, you know, that you're, that you think you've done wrong. Then, then suddenly we move from acquaintances to friends. I mean, you never become true friends with someone who's just giving you their flawless exterior. Do you have a couple of examples of failures in your life that you've experienced sort of outside of the academic space? Many. Um, I'll. I'll um, I guess I, I try to include in the in the book, you know, failures because I don't want to sound like I'm, you know, just this great scientist and I know it all. So I had to include, you know, basic failures where I just did something stupid and and suffered a failure. And and you know, they they include such things as long ago as an undergraduate uh, in college, I failed to do very much studying for a multivariate calculus exam and I got an F on, on the exam. I literally flunked the exam. I mean, this is a, you know, this is at that point a young person who's essentially never gotten an A minus. Um, so it was, it was pretty devastating. And, you know, I had this idea in my in my mind, I was pretty good at math and all the rest nonsense, right? I mean, you, you have to study. So that was, a, that was a bad one. More recently, a few years ago, I uh, entered an alumni sailing regatta. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a very good sailor. I, I, I've raced a lot in my life. And um, now th this turned out to have been a very windy day in high performance boats, the kinds of boats that really the, are for the young, you know, not for folks like me, although I, you know, I can hold my own. But I, and I did okay, not, not well, but, you know, not dead last in the race. And then heading into the dock, rookie error. I'm going, I'm heading dead downwind into the dock. Any experienced sailor, which I am one, knows that when you are heading down, when you are in a dangerous situation, if the if there is the tiniest shift in the wind, which in the Charles River is rampant, happens all the time, that boom can go flying across the boat and it can be a lethal weapon. 
right? Like a baseball bat to the head. And I'm just chatting away with my crew. I know better. And boom, <laughs> literally, here comes the boom. I, I didn't see it coming. It happened in less than a second, I imagine. And next thing you know, I'm in the Charles bleeding profusely with a, a pretty big head, head wound that ends up taking nine stitches and taking up the time, the valuable time of clinicians who surely have something better to do than to clean up after my basic failure. Um, so I felt terrible about it. And I, I, anyway, I obviously, I mean, here I am illustrating that uh, my, my intense fallibility uh, as a human being. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. What about emotional? Uh, have there been any sort of like um, emotionally triggered failures or, you know, poor judgment um, yeah. throughout your life? That, um, of course. You know. <laughs> yes. You know, and, and without having, you know, a specific moment in mind, um, I have, you know, many more times than I like to admit, you know, said things that I shouldn't have said in, in, you know, in um, say an argument with with my husband, I mean that that were un, uncalled for and unhelpful um, for sure, right? So that's a kind of you know it's a failure of self control, I suppose, and and that and most of those kinds of things you you we we can pick up and 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 move forward, and of course they're usually you know bilateral in nature, but they're never praiseworthy. Right? They're 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 never helpful. I mean we we'd be and I, as I speak for myself, I'd be much better off if I had the capability and the self-awareness to pause, you know, and think it through, right? Think through what will happen if, um, and make more thoughtful and considered responses. Now, I imagine most of our listeners um, have found themselves coming up short in their personal lives at various times, even if it's just the things which I've done as well, of, you know, not being there for a child's, you know, performance or game or, or, or so forth and because of work commitments or whatever and, and, and feeling bad about it. So we all have we all have those those deficiencies that we've produced of our own volition. And you know this is a, this is a podcast about leadership and, and I, I do think that we owe it to ourselves, our colleagues and our organizations to do better at work. I mean, we should do better at home too, but really we should do better at work. And I, I'm always, I, I, I truly remain kind of surprised at a deep level when I hear stories, and I still do, the modern era, where there, there are 
there are manager leader leaders who who yell and 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 scream at people or you know throw things or otherwise engage in in bullying behavior and it just seems almost to me impossible to imagine not taking that leadership responsibility more fully more seriously and just pause stop you know challenge what you were about to do and choose something else instead it's quite fascinating to think about it as at some point in the last hundred years that would have been the norm (laughs) yeah and um, never helpful but never helpful but actually you know progress was made and you know things were created and people did live fulfilling lives but at some point the weird niche voices that are like there's probably got to be a better way over time it must be quite encouraging to think you know over time they become the prevailing sensible most optimistic and pragmatic ways to build value and build careers and create new things in the world that people actually need and want and the previous dominant theory of what good management looked like or what normal management looked like anyway suddenly starts to become the niche it must be quite an interesting thing to sort of track over time, like the sort of cultural behaviors around that. Yes, it really is. And I think it correlates with, so it's you know, probably loopy causality here, but it correlates with the degree to which innovation becomes more and more important to business success, the degree to which um, product life cycles are shrinking so that you've got to be sort of learning oriented. You've got to be, your company has to be spending some significant portion of its energy like developing new things and you know and 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 developing people quickly to to fulfill the roles that are needed so you know as as the need for learning increases then the need for a different kind of leadership also increases so I know that the prevailing narrative, science, academia, and also personal experience all point to the fact that quite often your greatest failures do lead to your best opportunities. It's absolutely been the case in my life. Very hard to see it at the moment, but over a period of time, you notice that they really were. What happens in the rare times as an academic? What happens in the rare times where that that theory is actually proven wrong um, in quite a big way? Have you seen that where, you know, a a failure really hasn't created much of a a good opportunity or anything? And and how do you assess that? Well, you know, sometimes we're not we're just not patient enough. So Thomas Edison confronted by a lab assistant who said, gosh, you know, all these failures must be really hard for you. Um, He said, failures, right? I haven't failed. I found 10,000 ways that don't work right now. That's probably apocryphal, but it it represents a very true statement about an an inventor who's willing to keep going. So sometimes if we're not patient enough, let me if if you stop at 900, then it does look like nothing was learned. But I think a, a much more important point to make and and phenomenon to recognize is that not all failures are created equal. I think we can learn from all failures, but not all failures have equal learning value. And what I call intelligent failures are the best kind. You know, that's the gold standard. They're the ones we learn a lot from because they were designed for us to learn from them. They, They were experiments. They were, okay, we don't actually know what's going to work, but we've thought it through and this might work because, and we're not going to expend excessive energy or, or, or funds on trying it. And we try it and lo and behold, it's wrong, right? So it was designed to give us the learning we just got. We keep going. But let's say we have a failure caused by just not trying or a failure caused by failing to do our homework, you know, not reading the available knowledge about how to produce this result we want, which was readily available if we'd only taken the trouble to look and we fail, very little is learned from that. So they're not equal opportunities for learning. And then some failures happen, you know, the occasional failure is just plain bad luck, right? You had a beautiful thing all set up and along came a hurricane and wiped it away. Not your fault. What do you learn from that? Stay away from hurricanes? It's not a very generalizable lesson. Yeah, I guess you learn that nature is cruel and yes. you just cannot yes. account for everything in your life. Right. Um, so always you prepare. Reminds... You can learn to be prepared. Yeah. Yeah. For prepare the for the unexpected. Yeah. Correct. Which is obviously one of those things people say and then you realize in the cold light of day that's virtually impossible to do. But that is what life experience will give you over time. 
Okay, that's a really great, a great statement that you talk about, which is, you know, failure is inevitable in work, which I think is fair to say if you're pushing boundaries or you're not pushing enough boundaries, you're mm. going to fail in work. So how do you fail well? How do you do it with a right mindset? For me, failing well encompasses two categories. And one category is smart experiments, right? They, they, are, they are thoughtful forays into new territory. You have good reason to believe it could work, you've done your homework, it's not excessively um, expensive or wasteful um, if it doesn't turn out the way you had hoped. And so that's, you know, that's basically the scientific method. So it's when it fails, it was a good failure. As we discussed before, you learn from it. The other aspect of failing well, though, is preventing as many preventable failures as you can. You know, don't chat with your crew when you're sailing downwind in a hefty breeze in a, in a shifty river. So it's, it's using the available knowledge, the best practices, the teamwork, the vigilance, the training that we have available to do the things we already know how to do with excellence, right? With attention. And so there failing well means, you know, it's the Toyota production system, you know, 99.99% of the time it's perfect. You know, one in a million might slip through with a little flaw in them. So that's failing well by not failing. So I think, you know, you talk a lot about the four essential tools for failing well. I'd love to go through them if we can. Yeah. So, so the four criteria are one, it's new territory, right? It, it's, there's genuinely no way to find out what you need to find out to make progress without action, without, without trying something. Number two, it's in pursuit of a goal. We're not just sort of having fun experimenting, but we don't have any clear idea of where we're trying to go or what we're trying to develop. And number three, it's you've done your homework. You've done the, the work you need to do to get up to speed on what is known, whether that's talking to customers or reading the scientific literature, you name it. You know, if, if someone else has sort of tr done this same startup before and it failed wildly, find out why. Do something slightly different. And number four, it should be as small as possible. It's so that the action, the experiment, the initiative should be no bigger than it has to be to get the knowledge you need. And so in clinical trials, for instance, you do the power calculations to find out how many patients do we need to get an effect size statistically if this drug actually works in, in, in curing the disease. And you don't want to involve any more patients than you have to. And, and so that's, a, you know, it's just a concrete illustration of, of as small as possible, because as small as possible is going to be a judgment call. There's no, you know, one right answer for, well, how, how big is too big? It's you, you have to use your judgment, use your expertise to sort that out. I think about failure um, a fair amount. I'm an entrepreneur, so it's pretty, pretty common. Tell me a little bit about the mindset that we need to actually fail well. Do you have some good examples of uh, things that we can do and, and think about? Yes, you know, I think the um, those the people who fail well, and especially those who fail well for a living, and entrepreneurs would be one of the categories where that can be true. Are quite driven, but they're quite goal oriented. They want to expand what's possible for themselves or for their communities. So they're 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 driven. They are curious. They really it's like a genuine desire to find out what happens if. Um, you know, they don't want to just sit around and read about it. They want to try it. And, and thirdly, they are very tolerant of failure. Right? They have stronger failure muscles than, than the rest of us. Right? They, they kind of, like Thomas Edison, the, the famous quote, it just, they, they're more willing and able to bounce back, to withstand the disappointment that each failure brings. So, so for listeners, do you have some examples that we can sort of jump to and, and, and go and explore ourselves what good failure looks like? Yeah, so actually, I mean, part of, of this exploration is having rituals and opportunities for people to share their failures. It's, it, boy, it makes us all feel so much better when we learn about other people's failures. It also is vicarious learning. We can really uh, learn from them. So many companies have Things like Failure Friday, CNS, the big retailer, uh, has that, um, for example, or um, Failure Awards. Tata has a you know failure award, and this is not, of course, these awards aren't for sloppy work. 
you know, mailing it in and you didn't do well. These are always awards that are given for someone who really tried something bold and failed because the point is to encourage other people to do likewise. In academia, there's kind of a growing interest in failure resumes. I described how, you know, I've, I've had many, many papers rejected from journals that I really hoped would get in. And, you know, you you could, I actually haven't, but you could publish a, um, a resume of the rejections. Of, and um, one thing I have done uh, well and honestly is share with my PhD students, one after another, all those rejection letters, you know, you know in ways that, first of all, so they can see that, oh, even she got those letters. It doesn't have to be so painful. And secondly, because they really do point to errors that or fail or flaws that the papers had that maybe they can avoid, even though I I didn't at, the, at that time. So these kinds of little rituals are just, I think they they tap into our humanity, right? Our desire to connect with each other, our desire to be together, our desire to to um, know that we have this in common, and and. They shape, they shape the culture, right? They really make it, they make this very important aspect of reality more discussable and more, more tolerable. One of the ways that you suggest as well that I really enjoyed and I'd never really thought about was picking up a new hobby. Yes. Can you talk about why that makes <laughs> sure. sense? Sure. Yeah. I mean, when I say that for individuals as opposed to companies, although I think it probably applies for companies too, you know, one of the ways to become a better failer is to fail more often, of course. So one of the ways to do that is to try something new. And 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 maybe it's a little, it's a bridge too far to go have more failures tomorrow in your professional life, but you can have them in your, in your, the rest of your life, the other part of your life. So a very dear friend of mine, um, in her 40s, joined a. Um, she lives up in Vermont, uh, in in the U.S., and she joined a um, a hockey team as a complete neophyte. She knew how to skate, but that was about it. And I remember thinking at the time, "Wow, I mean, that's brave, and you're not going to be good at it. And aren't you sort of already a little busy?" And uh, but it 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 became she indeed she was you know not very good at it, and but she loved trying. She loved learning. She loved her teammates and really became her obsession I mean, just in, in, a, in a very wonderful way. Not to be entirely outdone, I, I picked up golf about 10 years ago and it's pretty hard sport to pick up um, as a, you know, later in life. And it's frustrating. And it's also so satisfying, you know, when, when occasionally I actually make good contact between the ball and the club, it's, it's a moment of joy. But I do feel every time I go out there and essentially fail, many shots are, are truly failures. It's humbling. I mean, I mean, I don't expect to be really good, but I sure would like to be a little better than I am. But it is, it's, it's interesting because if I don't do things like that, then I'm, I'm at risk for only doing things that I'm already good at. You know, I can teach an MBA class. I can, you know, write another academic article. These are things that I've learned how to do through hard work, through lots of failure. Um, but I think a way to just build those failure muscles is to do it through hobbies, you know, water, pick up watercolor, um, maybe a musical instrument, What's anything that draws that draws you in. Yeah, it's interesting. When I when I started my more recent business, Heights, I was trying to think about it. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And, you know, I had this period of time with my business partner. And so we thought that maybe a really good way to ignite creativity was to take up improv together. And I always get compliments on being funny from people. I've often thought that I might become a stand-up comedian one day, future career kind of thing. Definitely got like wit, as in this is about as um, arrogant as a British person gets. Like th th those are things that I, I, I pre I've had enough compliments on them to understand that th those are my uh, strong suits, many weak suits. That is kind of in my thing. So I was like, you know what? It's his idea, improv. This sounds great. I can't wait to go. I've never had a real chance to sort of flex my comedy muscles. And I sucked so bad at it. And I never really improved, it's worth saying. Um, yeah. In case you think this story is going to go somewhere uh, meaningful, <laughs> I, I sucked the whole time. I actually really learned something. Wit is not a very good, it's actually not a very good character trait for improv at all. Because you, with wit, uh, someone else is speaking or a moment is happening and you're thinking maybe two or three seconds before the end, the funny response. With right. improv, the thing happens in the last millisecond. 
Right. And you've already planned your response and it's wrong already and you suck and it falls flat. And so I found it a really interesting experience. I did it for six months as well. I mean, I really gave it a good go, but I was terrible. What a metaphor. So, I mean, that's a yeah. great metaphor, right? Because you you get penalized for not being present, right? In, in a sense, not being truly learning oriented. T- totally. You're, so you're to not perform, really not you're not really listening yeah you're not right. actively listening right. you're really not and uh that's absolutely the wrong behavior in that that actual field i'd love to talk on one of the other things you talk about which is again i found this resonated so much with me which is you will survive you will you will i mean it's you are a fallible human being right each and every one of us um you will make mistakes you will have failures and you'll get through them. I mean, there, there are, of course, this is not about being nice or accepting everything and everyone. This is about being clear, being clear about where the boundaries are so that then people can freely operate within those boundaries. Really everything you set out to do that you think, oh, it's going to be awful if, you know, I fail. It's not true, right? It'll be inconvenient. But in fact, and you've got to tell yourself this because it's true, right? You'll get through it. You'll survive it. I mean, take inspiration from the Thomas Edisons of this world, the the scientists who just their bread and butter is failure along the way to greatness. Yeah. Uh, The reason why this one resonated with me so much is my prior to the improv, actually, my previous business, Scrabble, was one of the UK's hottest startups and it failed. And we went from a period of very, you know, winning every award, being invited to speak on every stage, uh, winning an award from the Queen um, at Buckingham Palace and all of this stuff and many dinners and things there, which will inflate your ego when you're in your late 20s and this is all happening. And then we failed. I was deeply embarrassed um, and ashamed. Um, And British culture does not reward failure like American culture does at all. And I think I was lucky because I had a peer group of other entrepreneurs who understand that that's also par for the course. Shoot for the stars or, you know, the Icarus thing, you know, fly too Mm -hmm. close to the sun. You know, there's a very fine line between success and failure at those kind of high stakes, high funding, high growth uh, realities. And I read that, what you said, it really resonated because... It helped me start a better business that was more aligned with my values. I'm much happier now. I'm purposely growing it slower. You know, we're not taking money that we don't need. So many decisions that are learned from the failure that have put me in a much better position with my health, my mindset, my mental health, the people around me to enjoy the journey. Right. Like that's the other thing. And if you're enjoying the journey, you don't necessarily even think about when it's going to end. You're just in a process of like, this is my life's work and I'm happy. So those were really valuable lessons from that failure. But at the time, no, didn't I feel that way. The only thing I would love to be able to take away from that story, like to remove from that story was the shame and the embarrassment, right? Because those are not in fact the right reactions to having a soaring success that then turns into a failure. This is, it's complex. It was novel. It wasn't your fault. You're put in that limelight. You know, what are you going to say? No to the queen. Right? So it's, it's sort of, um, and yet that's human, right? You wouldn't be quite human if you didn't at least experience that a little bit. And I think the self-discipline is to learn to challenge it, say, okay, where is this coming from? Like, where is this shame Um, Well, the only logical explanation for this shame is a wrongheaded belief that it shouldn't have happened or, you know, I shouldn't have allowed that to happen. But that's nonsense. You're literally in new territory, right? It's it's this is what happened. In fact, the most powerful question, I think, for learning from failure is what happened? And we spontaneously want to ask, well, who did it and whose fault was it? Wrong questions, right? It's what happened? Oh, and what happened from your perspective? Because what happened from where I sit looks a little different. And when we put those together, we have a fuller narrative about what happened. And then we can see more opportunities to tweak and pivot and, and do better next time. And on that note, when I did a postmortem on my own experience running that company, what happened was uh, an inexperienced leader tried to take on more than he actually understood or knew. And actually, um, as a result, 
didn't build a strong, cohesive and powerful enough culture. And that was all on me. And I learned those lessons deeply this time around with Heights, where we're very value centric and very culture centric from the get go. And one of the key tenets of things that we really focus on, we get training in, we all speak about a lot is psychological safety. So when I saw you speaking about this stuff as well, I'm like, oh, you know, this is just all music to my ears. For the sake of listeners who might not have come across the term, what is psychological safety and why does it matter? Here's my short definition. It's a sense of permission for candor. It's a, it's a belief, not that it's easy or an experience, not that it's easy to speak up with challenging ideas or questions or I need help, but that it's accepted, that it's what we do around here. It will not lead to embarrassment or rejection. And psychological safety is really a learning environment. It's rare, right? So most organizations or most teams are not quite where they need to be to be as learning oriented, as conducive to learning as they should be or could be. And it's funny because when you said candor, as I, if any of my team listened to this, we had a book club on radical candor and um, made everyone read it. And, you know, we all really enjoyed the discussions around it. I don't think everything needs to be radical to that extent, no, you know, no. but, it, but what that book does well is frame um, how candor really enables psychological safety. I think that's the insight that actually, you know, makes a lot of sense when you understand it. Right. I agree. And it's, 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 you know, radical isn't brutal, right? It isn't brutal candor. It's, it's radical only in the sense that it's so counter normative, you know, whether it's in the UK or Japan or the US, I'm sorry, we aren't good at it. And, and so it's a radical idea to think we're going to talk straight, you know, that when I've got an idea, I'm going to share it. Or when I really disagree with the boss, I'm going to say so. Or when I need help, because I'm in over my head, I'm going to ask for it. And, those are radical behaviors. And, and you're right. The more we do them, the more we create psychological safety, the more psychological safety, the easier it is to do them. So practically speaking, sounds nice. Our listeners are all leaders. They're like, yeah, okay, uh, this lady speaks some truth. What the hell do I do to create psychological safety? And I think there's maybe two parts to that. One is this stuff feels easier when you're starting new. That was my opportunity. Yes. I'd, yes. I'd learned from my mistakes. I'd had time to think about stuff. And I was starting from scratch and saying, this is how we build a great culture. We're honest, we're vulnerable. We speak from our hearts, all of these things. And we, we discuss our failures. It's actually, I'm imagining a lot harder to hear this recognize what you're saying maybe there's quite a few leaders listening to this and thinking this might actually speak to the very heart of the problem we're going through right now how do i pivot and start to bring this into my organization i think you pivot by thinking aloud you know being willing to acknowledge what you see which is that there are challenges ahead there's uncertainty in our industry or our markets or our or products and services in other words call attention to the reality of the work that you do and lead. Because by calling attention to that reality, you're creating a rationale for why people's voices are needed. It, because it's it's one thing to say, oh, we want you to speak up. Yeah, why exactly? You know, if I speak up, I might put myself at risk. And why would I do that? Right? Well, you do that because look at what we're trying to do. It takes all of us to do that well. So you you start by sort of, I call it reframing the work because my, my premise is that most people have outdated industrial era models inside their head. You know, that you're supposed to set your targets, meet your targets, like all is predictable and well. No, all is unpredictable and complex. So name it, name it, make it discussable. Let's talk about it. And then secondly, and really important, lean into inquiry. Ask more questions than you normally do. Ask good questions, the kind of question that focuses the conversation on some issue that matters, some area of uncertainty that we need to get our arms around. And a good question is one that focuses, that, that gives people room to respond, you know, that, that creates a need for careful thought. And like you're doing right now in this podcast, you're asking me a question. I guarantee you, it would be very awkward, if not impossible, for me to sit here silently after you ask a question, right? A question creates a demand for voice. Now, you could get, you know, artificial voice. I could give you my, you know, fake talk, right? Things I don't really believe that I think you want to hear. And that's, that's always a risk. But I think if you phrase your questions well, you will be clear and people will, will understand you to mean, I really want to hear what you're thinking. 
and and finally monitor your responses right we, we talked earlier about the yelling and screaming you know we don't do that i mean your response has to be things like i hadn't thought about it that way that's interesting or thanks for that clear line of sight or what help can i give you right i mean it just you have to make the kind of these moments of of, of challenging voice a positive experience because they're not naturally so if I want to build a culture where psychological safety is promoted and committed to, I'm not trying to ask an oxymoronic question here, by the way, <laughs> or trap you, but I, I guess this is how my mind works. So say I think the most important cultural facet of my company is psychological safety. Then I want people to practice it. I want to encourage it. I want to bring, you know, the horse to water, so to speak, and do as much training with empathy and kindness as I possibly can. How do you treat the the culture and the company when people won't play ball and you need to show them the door because is there almost like a yeah i guess the right word is a you know, paradox yeah. of it right which is this is what we decided is really important you won't do it and that almost creates its own backward psychological no, no. safety yeah i mean psychological safety is not the same as job security um, in, mm. in fact the um the amazing alan mulally gives us some very beautiful examples of this in his leadership of, of the turnaround at Ford a decade or so ago, um, where he's, you know, he's very clear about what the new behaviors are and what the honesty is required and what we owe each other in a sense of accountability to each other. Very clear, crystal clear about it. And those who don't get in line, he essentially says, you know, it is completely up to you whether to choose to behave in this way or not. But if you choose not to, you won't be doing it here. This is not about being nice or accepting everything and everyone. This is about being clear, being clear about where the boundaries are so that then people can freely operate within those boundaries. But the kinds of behaviors we will not tolerate are, you know, for example, even something as simple as coming to the meeting and saying one thing and then later in the hallway saying, saying another thing. Um, that is, you know, directly in contradiction. And because it's, you know, political behavior, we won't tolerate it. It is okay. You know, one of the most important things you can do, I believe, to create psychological safety for re for good risks and for speaking up is to sanction clear violations. Okay, so what are your three things that you can do to ensure psychological safety in the workplace? If I want to put a toolkit in now, what do I need to consider? Well, I don't think you can ensure it. But I think you can you can um, foster it, reinforce it, do your best. And they are reframe the work, invite input widely, and respond productively. And I, in, in, I already described you know what reframing the work is all about. But just replace people's taken for granted assumptions that it's just a formula we're supposed to follow it, and you know all will be well. Like you said earlier, this is easier, and I agree for for startups than for for more mature operating companies. Because in a startup, in you know phase one, you know it's explicit. You know you're experimenting. You know you're mucking around to try to find that replicable formula for success that we can actually get paid uh, to do and do it well and organize ourselves to do it rigorously and, and, um, you know, and, and consistently. And, and then once we get that and we start sort of ramping up and growing fast and producing that formula, then it becomes far more threatening to kind of challenge it because like this is what we do the, you know this is where the money comes from and so it's and that's that's the kind of domain that I'm more often looking at and 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 uh, helping with which is where there is this risk that people won't speak up they don't want to be the one to say well, maybe this emperor doesn't have clothes anymore because the world has changed um, around us or uh, I got a wild idea like hey we don't want to hear it we're busy you know so so it's it's about reframing the work to to kind of remind people, nope, this is still learning work. Innovation still matters. Speaking up about small imperfections really matters, right? So you're just reminding people of the sport we're playing so that they are willing to play that sport. And secondly, you know, I said ask good questions, but also, you know, create um, structures and systems that require people. You know, you you talked about the post mortem. Like that's a good example of a structure that essentially creates psychological safety by bringing us together and requiring us to do the hard work of speaking about what we think happened, what went wrong, you know, what we might do differently next time, right? So it's a, it's a structure that makes it hard to opt out. And, and then finally, the 
learning-oriented response, the response to all the bad, you know, all the red, all the problems, all the failures, the response must be looking forward. You know, it's kind of where do we go from here and how, how will we do it together so that there's, you know, it's not fun to look at the things that went wrong, but we'll do it because we're largely interested in going forward. And on the subject of asking good questions, let's hope my last one is a good one. I wear two hats in my life now. One is, I guess, entrepreneur, startup, founder, persona. The other is dad to a tyrant, sorry, toddler. Um, (laughs) And so how can I encourage her to, as a parent, how can parents best prepare their kids to approach and handle failure whilst also obviously wanting them to succeed? First, be cheerful about and honest about your own failures, like normalize failure. You know, there's there, there, there are wonderful stories, some in the book about, you know, parents who ask their kids on Sunday night dinner, like, what did you fail out this week? And, you know, there's a sort of uh, excitement and encouragement of, of sharing those. And what did you learn? And, and, you know, making that normal and not shameful. Don't shield her from failure. Right? It's it's so tempting as a parent because you love them to pieces and you just don't want them to experience any pain or discomfort at all. Bad idea. Instead, let them you know make their own mistakes so long as they're not um, risking their safety in any way. You know, let them try hard things. You know, let them um, let them experiment and 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 fail at things and realize that it wasn't awful. Right? They, they build their little failure muscles. Um, they're hardwired to, to do this kind of thing. And they they learn so quickly what you approve of and don't approve of. So it's, it's, it's really um, a powerful opportunity to just kind of applaud, applaud their willingness to try new things and share what they learned. Amazing. Harder than running a startup? Probably. Very much so. Amy, thank you so much for your time on Secret Leaders. I'm assuming, you know, I, was, I would ask, you know, where can people get the book? But, you know, use your brain it's every, online. Oh, I hope it's everywhere. And I'm thrilled, uh, thrilled to have spent this time with you. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. If you enjoyed this episode and found it useful, please write us a review and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. It makes a real difference. And we genuinely love reading what you think. We read every single review. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. I've been your host, Dan Murray-Serta, and we'll be back next week with more lessons for entrepreneurs and leaders. This episode was produced by Alex Graham, Ruth Edwards, and all brought together by our head of podcast, Will Stolomon. See you next time.